Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. Hi, my name is Jenny Jagman, and I'm a PhD student in Don Andersson's group working with antibiotic resistance. And I am Eva Garmendia, and I work as a project coordinator at the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. So uh, we're very happy that you're listening to us right now. The AMR Studio podcast is a new project by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center in which we aim to bring the multidisciplinary research that is going on around the world to people that are interested in this topic. This is a really new project and neither of us have worked with this before. So we're doing a lot of learning by doing and hopefully things will get better as we go along. Hopefully we'll get better sound equipment, but we hope that you enjoy it as it is right now. Since in this uh, podcast, the idea is that we're going to bring people working in antimicrobial and antibiotic resistance from all around the world, we thought that it's only reasonable that we start by introducing both what antibiotics are and what antibiotic resistance is and why is it a problem. So Jenny, do you want to tell us, for example, what are antibiotics? So antibiotics are basically any kind of thing that can kill or prevent the growth of bacteria. So when we say antibiotics, we're specifically talking about bacteria in most cases. Most people mean that. But if we use antimicrobials, then we're being a bit more broad. So antimicrobials often include antivirals, um, antiparasitic drugs. um, But we might use antibiotic and antimicrobial a bit interchangeably here because they do overlap. An antibiotic is an antimicrobial. So basically... um when we talk about chemical substances that are able to inhibit the growth of bacteria or other microbes, we might be talking of antibiotics or antimicrobials. Um, So antibiotics, are they something that humans have made or is it something that is found in nature? Yeah, antibiotics are mainly found in nature, but there are some synthetic antibiotics as well that are completely man-made, but largely they're found in nature which if we go into um, antibiotic resistance, which is what we're mainly focusing on, is uh, the ability for bacteria to survive in the presence of antibiotics. And this is largely because found in nature and produced by sometimes other bacteria, the bacteria that produce the antibiotic have a way to survive the presence of the antibiotic. And this ability to survive can then spread to other bacteria. So antibiotic resistance is the capability or capacity that a bacteria or a microbe have to actually not be killed or be affected by the antibiotic or antimicrobial we are using. Yes. And this, uh, as we say, is something that has happened in nature because these microbes have been exposed to the antibiotics in the nature. But why is it a problem now with uh, treating infections? So... So there's a couple different ways that bacteria can become resistant. They can either, like we said, um, get a resistance ability from another bacteria. Uh, In that case, it's like a whole, maybe it's an an enzyme that breaks down the antibiotic, for example. Um, But sometimes also the bacteria can pick up these resistance genes, as we call them, for example, in the human body. If you have a strain of bacteria that can cause a disease, that strain of bacteria can pick up resistance genes from bacteria that don't cause disease and cause a resistant infection in your body. Or you can pick up bacteria that are already resistant. But bacteria can also develop mutations that might make them resistant to antibiotics. And that can happen in a patient as well. Uh, In general, 
it's thought that these resistance abilities make the cell grow slower. However, that might not always be the case, but if there is antibiotic presence, so if a patient, for example, is getting an antibiotic treatment, then these bacteria that are able to grow or able to survive the presence of antibiotics will survive while the other ones won't. And this selects for antibiotic resistant bacteria, which is why we have this problem now. We're selecting for resistant bacteria because there's so many antibiotics in treatment, in the environment, and basically all around the world. So the problem is that by misusing and overusing the antibiotics we have available, we have selected for resistant bacteria, and these resistant bacteria can spread around the world because nowadays we are not very compartmentalized in the world and there yeah. is a lot of movement and people move here and there and we have a big, like a close relationship with microbes. Microbes mm -hmm. live on us, bacteria live on us and wherever we go, we are taking the bacteria with us. And we can't get away from that. We can't get rid of all the microbes. There will always be microbes with us, living with us. We can't think that we'll get rid of the microbes. <laughs> no, definitely not. Um, so maybe we can talk a little bit about uh, patterns of resistance. Maybe give a couple of examples of what uh, is antibiotic resistance. Yeah, so there's a couple of antibiotics that most people know of. So most people recognize penicillin, which was the first real antibiotic, I guess, that was used in the clinic, one of the first at least, uh, which was discovered by Fleming. Uh, but Fleming even found penicillin-resistant strains of bacteria before penicillin started being used in clinics. And this shows that resistance hasn't occurred because we started using antibiotics in the clinic. Resistance existed before, and we're just selecting for it. Other examples, there's a lot of tetracycline antibiotics that we use, and these resistance developed to these antibiotics within a decade. Uh, something that some other resistant strains that more people might recognize from news coverage and things are uh, XDR tuberculosis, which stands for extra drug-resistant tuberculosis, I believe, and uh, okay. untreatable gonorrhea infections and other things. And these are, we're going to see more of this if we keep having this problem with an overuse of antibiotics or not ideal use of antibiotics. Yes. Um, so an obvious question that comes to mind when we talk about this, I guess we could just solve this problem by having new antibiotics. If we have resistance to the antibiotics we have already, we only need to bring new antibiotics that work in different ways than the ones before, so we can avoid cross-resistance, but that would be an easy solution. Is this something that can work? Uh, well, the way that antibiotic development has looked over the years, you'd think so. I mean, we always kind of thought we could find new ones because they're in nature, they're produced in nature. You look in nature for new compounds that kill bacteria, that sounds relatively simple. But the problem is now we've pretty much, we keep finding the same thing over and over again when we're looking for antimicrobials in nature. Then people started trying to synthesize new antibiotics in the lab, basically, create them themselves. And that was difficult. It's very hard to create a complicated chemical structure that doesn't kill the patient, but kills the bacteria and also gets to where the infection is in the patient. So there's been a lot of issues there. Uh, there's also an issue with the financial incentives to produce new antibiotics now, that it's very costly to produce a drug that is not meant to be sold in high amounts. So there's not a lot of research going into this from the pharmaceutical companies. There is still some research in, some basic research coming from academia. 
So we are basically in a situation right now where uh, um, resistance to antibiotics is spreading, is increasing, but we don't have new antibiotics. No, we haven't had a new class of antibiotics for a long time. We've had some new um, derivatives of already existing antibiotics, but these often can develop resistance easier because they're the resistance genes might already exist and they just need to adapt. Mm -hmm. Perhaps it's also interesting that we talk a little bit about why is it so important to solve the problem of antibiotic resistance? Why, how would the work look like if we wouldn't have antibiotics that would work? So I think a lot of people don't really understand how much we use antibiotics and how much we rely on antibiotics. So there's a lot of things in modern medicine that require maybe not always require antibiotics directly, but we depend on the ability to use antibiotics if things go wrong. For example, all surgeries basically require that antibiotics are possible. We would maybe still perform surgeries even without antibiotics, but they would be much less successful, and there would be many more complications afterwards. Uh, transplantation is something that would definitely require antibiotics. We suppress the immune system of a patient in a transplant, and that could lead to higher rate of infections, and you really need to have the antibiotics available. And that goes into other, I mean, anything that compromises the immune system. There are medications and diseases such as HIV. These patients are extra reliant on antibiotics. And chemotherapy, cancer treatment chemotherapy, also decreases the immune system of a patient. And that requires antibiotics to be available for when the patients do get sick. When the body's own immune system doesn't handle the infections properly, then we need the medications to handle. And there are other natural, let's say, uh, situations in which patients and humans might, might need to have antibiotics available. For example, very elderly patients, their immune system is not as strong as it used to be when they were younger, and also preterm babies. Absolutely. Um, so what we need to realize is that the modern medicine is actually sustained. Modern me medicine is completely dependent. I mean, it, the... the how advantages we we've made in modern medicine are sustained by antibiotics. So not only, I mean, these problems will, of course, increase. The, these wonderful advantages in modern medicine may not be possible anymore. But aside from that, we already have people that are largely affected by antibiotic resistance infections. Uh, conservative estimates or probably under estimated numbers. At this moment, research done globally estimates that about 750,000 people die a year in the whole world, direct cause of antibiotic resistant infections, of those 25,000 actually in European Union. But these numbers are largely probably underestimated because there is a problem, there is difficulties in really determining when a casualty is being caused directly as a result of an antibiotic resistant infection. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times people, if, for example, people who are undergoing chemotherapy, they'll but die of an antibiotic resistant infection. They might have survived the cancer without that antibiotic resistant infection, but their death is recorded as a cancer death, which is, I mean, it sounds morbid to talk about it this way, but it it's hard to figure out how many people really Perfect. lose their lives based on this or simply spend more time in the hospital and are affected in other ways. In any case, it is a lot of detrimental effects that we are seeing globally a cause of uh, antibiotic resistance. And if we don't change this trend, if we are not able to reduce the spread of antibiotic resistant bacteria and the rates at which is, this is happening, 
the casualties will increase and the detrimental effects of this problem will definitely increase. So yeah. this is a problem we need to be working on. So Ava, why is this such a complex problem? Um, antibiotic resistance, it is a very complex problem because it is actually no one's specific problem. Antibiotic resistance can be studied from many different angles. We can study it biologically, we can biologically get to know how bacteria become resistant, what mechanisms work for the resistance, how does the antibiotic work, how does the resistance spread. Um, but knowing only that doesn't really help us solving the problem. Then we can study antibiotic resistance also from the economical side. We can um, understand the development motives for antibiotic uh, production. We can study the access issues. This is um, largely because of disparities around the world. We have parts of the world that are overusing and misusing antibiotics and then we have parts of the world where people are dying because they don't have access to the antibiotics that could be working and helping them so this is an economical issue social there's another, sorry there's another economic issue as well i mean with antibiotics are used in agriculture so if we just remove antibiotics from agriculture partially there's an issue with the animals maybe suffering but it's also we might produce less the farmers might not be able to sustain their business without the antibiotics it is also a social problem because um, how we relate to antibiotics can be completely different depending on the part of the world we are. There are behavioral differences, cultural differences of how we uh, see diseases, how we see health issues, how we uh, trust uh, our health professionals and all these it's included into this uh, complexity of the antibiotic resistance problem. It is also a global and political issue. Um, we have to, to look into how the health infrastructures work in different countries and what are the capabilities of different countries to actually uh, help and be uh, included in, in what we call the fight against antibiotic resistance. And as you said before, we're not compartmentalized society anymore. We are a very global society. People travel and people move about and businesses are international and all of this kind of impacts everybody, even if resistance is a big problem in parts of the world and a smaller problem in other parts of the world, it will never stay that way. And also, ultimately, it is as well an ethical problem, yeah. right? Who, who takes care of the antibiotic infrastructure? Who takes care of uh, searching for new antibiotics or modifying antibiotics we already have? Who takes care of... Um, teaching people education around the use of antibiotics and around the misuse of antibiotics. Uh, so all this together, these biological, economical, social, political, ethical aspects make the issue of antibiotic resistance a very complex and a very uh, challenging one uh, globally. Uh, some people compare it to uh, global warming, right? Because mm -hmm. there is not just one... Uh, body of knowledge that can actually study it and solve it but it has to be a common effort yeah so this podcast is hosted by the UAC so what is the role of the UAC well we're gonna listen a little bit more about in detail what is the Uppsala Antibiotic <laughs> Center UAC Uppsala Antibiotic Center uh, but very briefly the Uppsala Antibiotic Center uh, became an idea uh, coming from this concept of complexity that we are just talked about because we agree and we acknowledge that 
the people that take care or the people that are looking for solutions in this problem, the antibiotic resistant problem, are people that need to be trained from different angles. They, it's not enough to just know about the biology of antibiotic resistance or the economical side or the social side. We want to create new professionals that are trained with this complexity mindset and that are able to recognize all the different angles that form part of this problem and in the future with with those skills those multidisciplinary skills are going to contribute to to solving the issue of antibiotic resistance but as i say we are gonna uh, now hear much more in detail what is uac how it was created and and the short path we had so far with the interview that uh, you uh, <laughs> did to both uh, me and lino sandegrian and don anderson about uh, the center itself hope you guys enjoy the interview <laughs> Thank you for joining us today, Professor Anderson and Dr. Sandegrian. Would you like introducing yourself? How about you start, Professor Anderson? My name is Don Anderson. I'm a professor in medical bacteriology at Uppsala University and also the director of the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. And I've been here at the university since 2004. My name is Lena Sandegrian. I'm a PhD in molecular biology. And I am a senior lecturer in medical bacteriology here at Uppsala University. Uh, came here in 2005, and I'm also part of the management group of the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. Okay. <laughs> Eva, would you like to introduce yourself mm. as well? Yeah, I can introduce myself. My name is Eva Garmendia, and I am a PhD by Uppsala University in medical sciences, bacteriology in particular. Since February, I've been working as a project coordinator at Uppsala Antibiotic Center. Would you like to tell us how you ended up where you are now? More general, not just specifically with the UAC, but kind of how you ended up in, in your position. Mm -hmm. I did my PhD in, at Stockholm University uh, in molecular biology. It didn't have anything to do with antibiotics or, or resistance in any way. But then I came here as a postdoc in 2005. After that, I actually didn't start with antibiotic resistance at the time. But there was an outbreak at the hospital <laughs> that I started working with. And that started in 2005, so I got involved in that the following years. And that's kind of how I angled into the resistance business, <laughs> describing resistance. I work a lot with mobile genetic elements and, and horizontal gene transfer, how that affects the resistance. And then, yeah, I've kind of done the career steps that you do, assistant professor, associate professor. So. And stayed close to antimicrobial resistance. Yeah, my research group is working on antibiotic resistance. Um, Tom, would you like to? Yes, I've been interested in research for a long time, for as long as I can remember. No, but probably since high school, I was very interested in research and especially biology. And, and that kind of led me to the university studying green biology to start with, plants and animals. But I soon realized that microbiology, genetics was more interesting. So I switched to that after a few years. And then I did a PhD in molecular biology, working on protein synthesis. A postdoc in the US, uh, came back to Sweden. Then I worked at the Swedish Institute for Infectious Disease Control for 10 years. And there I became very interested in antibiotic resistance. For the last 20 years or so, 25 actually, I've worked on different aspects of antibiotic resistance. So my research group is focused on that, but we also do work on other 
evolutionary problems or evolutionary processes? It's not as clear, or this is a much easier question for you than for other people that we ask, because there's a clearer path from bacteriology specifically into AMR, but it is still a bit of a path. Like you said, you worked with something completely different before and then came into AMR research and you wanted to work with green plants <laughs> from the beginning and then developed an interest along the way. Ava? <laughs> how did I come out? Like, how did I end up in Sweden, I guess? Yeah, That's how did you end up? Because right? I'm originally <laughs> not from Sweden, as opposed to Don and Linus, which are Swedish. I'm from Spain. And I actually came to Sweden as Erasmus student first. And I chose to come to Uppsala University because while I was studying in Granada, where I did my undergrad in biology, I already started working in a lab that was interested in evolutionary questions using grasshoppers as model organisms. So I had to choose a place where to go, and I wanted to go to a university that was good at uh, teaching things related to evolution. And in Europe, one of the top ones was Uppsala University, and it was I was lucky that there was a bilateral collaboration between my university and Uppsala. I applied, I got the position, so I got to spend 10 months here studying. And I was also lucky enough to do a project during my time as Erasmus student here with Darme Hughes, which is also interested in evolutionary questions using microorganisms as model organisms. And I really enjoyed it. I had a great time. I learned a lot during the time that I was here in the lab. So when I went back to Spain to finish the degree, I was sure I wanted to return to Sweden somehow possibly to do a PhD because I was already interested in science and I wanted to do uh, research and the next step was to do a PhD. I applied to a PhD position with Dharmet and then a year after I returned to Spain to finish the degree, I got a ticket, one ticket, one, <laughs> one way, way ticket, ticket to Sweden. <laughs> that was six years ago. So that's how I came to Sweden. Then I did my PhD in uh, questions that are not directly related to antibiotic resistance, but we use antibiotics as tools in a sense but working in a corridor where so many antibiotic resistant questions were addressed also in the same group I was working on I got really interested in the topic and not only interested but realizing what an important topic it is to work on so I was soon to finish my PhD studies and I had to think what am I going to do next like it always <laughs> happens right like what is the next step and I realized that I didn't really want to continue working just in academia, just in the lab, as we say. But I wanted to have a job that will entitle doing some other type of activities, but not going far away from science, because science is something that I knew I wanted to work on since I'm a kid, basically. Before I even knew what probably science meant, <laughs> I knew I wanted to work on science. And the job at the Uppsala Antibiotic Center kind of came from the sky on top of me at the right moment <laughs> and uh, I thought that it would be a really cool opportunity because here I do still uh, are connected to science but I do many other different things yeah. at the center. Not just connected to science, I mean still connected to research even if you are exactly. doing your own research. Yes, I, I, even though I'm not doing my own project, research projects but I need to uh, be on top of what is the research that is going on at the center so mm -hmm. I am connected to it and I'm able to know what's going on firsthand as well. Yeah. Yeah. We can segue from that into, if anybody wants to explain, what is the Uppsala Antibiotic Center? I can do that, <laughs> I think. Uh, so it's, it's a center, Uppsala Antibiotic Center. It was started in 2015, formally, but in reality it started about one year later. 
And it's a center that's funded by money from Uppsala University, from all faculties, which I think makes it rather unique. So it's supposed to cover all aspects of, of the problem of antibiotic resistance, from humaniora's social sciences perspectives, from technical and natural sciences, and also from medicine and pharmacy. Uh, so it's a very broad center. And as we have money for four years, 40 million Swedish crowns, and that money is mainly used to fund uh, PhD students. We have 14 PhD students in this program and also three assistant professorships, uh, one for each uh, faculty. And what the center is supposed to do is to educate, educate students, do research and also function as a something that connects research in this area in Sweden, but also internationally. And it's really the two first parts that we have gotten started, uh, the research projects with the 14 students that's running, and the three assistant professors are being recruited, and that will soon be done. The outreach and the coordination is something we have not done so much with so far, but that is going to expand uh, as we go along. So it's basically a teaching and research center that hopefully can coordinate this area of antibiotic resistance in Sweden. Yeah. Linus or Eva, would you like to add anything? Yeah, something that is unique is that we build it around the PhD students, which means that we're financing part of their salary and their group leaders are financing the rest, <coughs> which means that we bring them together in an environment that is very broad, cross-disciplinary. They have their own projects, but they also have these courses and seminars and workshops together. And they span from all these different scientific disciplines. And that's also a way to get the PhD students to learn that this problem cannot be solved with only one kind of question. We need to have all these disciplines involved. Otherwise, it's going to be very hard to get a handle on the resistance that we see today. Yeah, so the goal that we have is that through this PhD school, this this graduate school, we are going to create new scientists that they were actually trained to understanding the problem of antibiotic resistance from the different disciplines that are involved in it. Because it's not just understanding how resistance works, it's not just understanding how infection works, but also understanding how do you work with the antibiotics that already exist, how can you get new antibiotics, how can you diagnose the infections properly and in a timely manner. So we can actually bring all this together and make these new professionals that are going to be soon in the future have the skills and the training that combines all this together. And maybe also just the respect for the different fields than the already kind of established collaboration and understanding of the complexity of the problem. And also learning how to talk to each other, right? Because that is not easy. They are so centered in in their own topics and the way they, they talk to each other is pretty defined right and then mm-hmm. when you want to find synergies and how they can find uh, common goals in the different disciplines they also need to learn how to communicate to each other yeah. which is is a challenge sometimes but we we're working on that and that's one of the goals of the center i think one thing that helps there i mean the uac holds these seminars that are open to the public but also usually the pis for the phd students give a talk and some other guest speakers mm-hmm. but I think it's nice for the students to see their PI then trying to hold a seminar that's more general and they see that, I mean, there's different ways of communicating the same information. They see someone who's a specialist that they understand the jargon change their way of speaking for a more general public. That's a big challenge. <laughs> <laughs> but, Works better for some than others, of course, but 
I think it's part of the learning process for them to see other people doing it as well. It is difficult to get it together because it's so such different projects. Just to give an example, we have projects that cover molecular details of antibiotic resistance mechanisms on, on the one hand, to projects that look at antibiotic use in a hospital, for example. We have one in Hermaniora that uh, is in linguistics that studies how doctors and patients interact to get their antibiotic prescription. So it's a very, very broad field of research, uh, and the students have very different backgrounds. So that's, uh, as Eva says, it's a challenge to get them to talk to each other and to understand each other's languages, because they are quite different. So you mentioned when the UAC was founded, but how did it really come to be? How did it go from idea to action? It actually goes quite a bit back, and I, I think when it started was actually uh, discussions that I had with Otto Kars, who founded React and uh, also Strama, and is a very central figure in the in the field of antibiotics and antibiotic resistance in Sweden and internationally. We talked. Oh, I don't remember. It was probably already in 2012, 13, something like that that Uppsala University had such a strong research profile in this area that they should have some kind of center to unite these forces because we had all these PIs working on on the different projects. And we brought this up to the faculty, and then this was brought up to uh, our vice-chancellor, Eva Åkesson, and she liked this very much, and she decided that this should be funded. So she actually went in with half of this funding from the vice-chancellor, and the rest came from the faculty. So this was in 2015. So it was a long process, and it, it really hasn't been up and running until really 2017. That's when it started for real. So it's, yeah, it took about five years. Yeah. <laughs> from some idea to getting it started. But it's become established now. I mean, it's surely established with the PhD student. Yeah, I mean, now it's up and running. Yeah. And, 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 and something, of course, we think about a lot is how to fund it and continue mm-hmm. this after these four years. But uh, yes, that's another question, how, mm-hmm. how we can do that. The future is always uncertain. Yeah. <laughs> how did you come on to the project, Linus? To the UAC project. I was involved in these first meetings, but then we just, so there, there was an inventory kind of who is working with these questions at the faculty or the, the different faculties. I remember I was in those talks and we were discussing what could be done and I'm not sure even that we had the financing finished. It was probably an early, and then we had the application, formal application, starting the center. Uh, so I was involved in those questions and then... Um, when it was decided, I don't remember, how did we form the first management group? Because it was me and Don and Cecilia Nilsson and Anna Sorset that started as a formal management group. And then we have a steering group that is their representatives from all the scientific disciplines. And there's also uh, representatives from the Swedish Agricultural University and the Swedish Veterinary Agency. Two stakeholders, of course, because antibiotics are used in not only human medicine, but in, in and also from the pharmaceutical yeah, pharmaceutical uh, yep. industry has a representative as well. So we have the connections with the industry as well. So that's when I started. So I, I came in and formally worked with this from basically June 2016. I think we sat down and started to get this together, and then we have recruited all the PhD students and so on. And 
Ava, you told us a little bit about how you ended up here, but maybe you can say more how you feel like it's been going so far. Yeah, so it's been now already nine months, eight months, which happens really quickly, actually. <laughs> it feels like it was yesterday when I started. It's been a lot of work. I think me coming into the management team has kind of round up and kind of kickstart where is all the activities with the students as well because my main job is to coordinate and make sure that all the portfolio of activities that we have at the center are done in the time that should be done and organized so since i came in we've had workshops we had seminars we have also worked on developing the part that Don was mentioning more on the outreach side as well, because we also want to work as a center for communication on the problem of antibiotic resistance and the research that is going on antibiotics in the center. And yeah, I think personally I've learned a lot in these eight months on the topic, because as I mentioned, my PhD wasn't on antibiotic resistance, so I knew from going to seminars and from listening around but uh, the amount of information that one kind of takes in in this type of center is it's incredible. So in these eight months, I've learned a lot about the topic. I learned a lot of organizational skills as well. Although it was pre-organized already, but when you take on a project like this, where you have all these different activities and this communication with different people, you kind of need to really put the things straight. Otherwise things get lost in the midst of <laughs> so I have learned organizational skills, project management skills and I met a lot of people as well. And I've gotten better at my Swedish also, which is something <laughs> that I can be thankful for because before I didn't have many opportunities to use the Swedish language and now working at the at this level of the university things get into more uh, the Swedish language. So I had to also get better at that. <laughs> so it's been very enjoyable so far, I would say. Yeah. Linus and Don, you also, I mean, as you introduced yourselves, you do have roles in the UAC officially as well. How does your day-to-day -day work coincide with the UAC? I mean, you're not only the director and on the steering committee for the UAC. How does no, your role take place? We're 20% <laughs> of our time is in yes. the UAC. So it's, it's a division. Now, we both work with re resistance problems, so it kind of, Overlaps, a lot. overlaps quite a lot, I guess, um, and especially when it comes to interactions with other people. But I mean, the more formal UAC things comes in with. Now, from the start, we were four in the management group, and we overall part time working, so we did pretty much everything. And then when Eva came in as a full time coordinator, then she is taking care of the more day to day business. But it still includes a lot of organization of the seminars and the workshops. Now we're going into more of a phase of applying for more money as well to extend this, of course. So there's that part is a lot of future work pick, to picking up. Yeah, that, that's part of the future work. Yeah. But it's I think it's very fun to see how it develops from the initial idea, recruiting the PhD students, and especially how the attitude from the university <laughs> <laughs> has changed. I mean, from from the top, the university has always been interested in this, but some of the faculties were a little bit hesitant about starting centers because some centers don't really work. There's been some bad experience with centers, but now we really see that people like this kind of, the way that the center has developed and that they see that there is a synergy effect uh, and that we can get this together with the whole university because it's very hard to do that usually. If you just have people work on their own projects, it's never really a collaboration in any way. People don't see that there is an added value of having a center. But in this case, I think most people think that we 
you actually got something good going on that there is an extra added value of having this. So there was some hesitation with the collaboration in the beginning between the faculties. Not the collaboration, but there were people raised the question of, of whether a center would actually maybe it wasn't the way to go. There's always uh, people have different opinions on how to use the money, but uh, in, in this case, there were questions if centers were really the way to go. And there's been really big grants for starting centers, not not just from the university, but from the research council in Sweden and so on. And sometimes these things have been just patter out. It looks good on paper, but it doesn't really mean people collaborate in a good way. But I think that the way we set it up with with the PhD student projects that really helps. Mm-hmm. And it's not that we just distribute the money to some projects and then they go on on their own, and we say that they should collaborate. But the the way we get the PhD students to interact is a real added value with this. And and also I shouldn't just say the PhD students. I've been a bit surprised how much the PIs, the group leaders, actually interact when we have meetings together with the PhD students. There are lots of talk going on between different group leaders that they can collaborate on different projects, or they understand the the, the wider problems in the in the field as well. So it's I think people are learning a lot from each other. Yeah. Would you like to add anything, Bill? I think Lina's covered it. I think it's very easy to have this part-time job together with otherwise yeah. because it overlaps so much. Uh, and I think the centers come to a very, very good start. It, it, it's uh, it's good interaction, and that, of course, is uh, one of the main things we are trying to achieve, that, that people from different fields talk to each other. And I think we have achieved that. I think people have realized that at Uppsala University, there's a lot of competence within the university in this field. In the original call for these 14 PhD students, we had 43 applications. Uh, at least I had no idea that we had so many groups at Uppsala yeah. University <laughs> that worked in this field. And most of these applications were in principle fundable. So we, we have a very strong university, I would say, when it comes to antimicrobial resistance. So you've mentioned that future financing is one of the things that the center is working on right now. Is there anything else new that's going on? You also mentioned that there will soon be a few new positions mm-hmm. will be made official. Yeah, so that, that's the, the main thing, I would say, now to get the three assistant professorships appointed to have them in place. Hopefully that will be done before the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then, as Leon said, it, but we want this center to continue and not just run for four years. So that's uh, something we are working quite hard with now to secure further funding for the future. And that's going to take a lot of our work time during 2019, I would say. And it would be great to bring in a new batch of PhD students as well. Yeah. But for that, we need quite a lot of funding. So. Yeah. It's not just a coordination. If the center is going to go on, I think we need those PhD students to come with a certain frequency. I mean, mm-hmm. not every year, but every second, third year, it would be really good to have a little bit of overlap between the different groups. Yeah. And there doesn't seem to be a lack of potential applicants either. No, I think we. that's not the, the that's concern. Not the problem. <laughs> that's not the problem. It's, it's rather that we need some sustained funding. We have applications going in. Optimistic about this. Well, you did also mention before a bit about teaching and the outreach side of it, maybe. Are there any, how do you say, structured plans for how to continue with this? 
the research uh, side has been the focus until now. But I mean, there are several aspects of the outreach that we want to try to get in place. One is, of course, to establish better connections with similar programs nationally. There is one in Gothenburg called CARE. That's a similar type of setup. There are research schools in Umeå, for example, in infection biology. We want to get a closer connection to them. There are several centers or a couple of centers in Norway that has been very interested in establishing contacts uh, with us. So that is one thing to collaborate with with national and international centers, for example, in the form of common courses for PhD students and common workshops and symposia. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it's the other outreach, and I think perhaps Eva is better prepared to answer that in terms of reaching out to the general public. So we would like the center, as I mentioned before, to be kind of the center of reference and communication in this topic and one important part in antibiotic resistance is to bring awareness to the public that this problem exists, how does the public relate to the problem, what can the public do uh, for running the problem. So one of the ways is this very same podcast that we're starting now, trying to bring the voices of uh, antimicrobial resistance to interested public to see that there are many different topics in antibiotic resistance, antimicrobial resistance, what drives the people to study these problems, what are the pitfalls, what things are they working on, but then also more practical uh, outreach projects like it could be being part of the SciFest in Uppsala, uh, we have a very big scientific festival where uh, schools from the commune come and they learn about scientific problems. So we, we are planning to have a, a stand at the SciFest. And then we also uh, would like to set up some projects for the Antibiotic Awareness Week as well, uh, which happens every year in November. So have like a running program where during the Antibiotic Awareness Week, together with perhaps other uh, institutions in Sweden, we can bring the problem to the public. And we are welcome to any other projects that other institutions might want to work on as well to bring it to the general audience, of course. Something that was very positive with regards to the first thing Don said, collaborating with other research schools internationally. We just got um, granted um, first year funding for a collaborative research school together with the University of Groningen in the Netherlands. They have a similar research school with the focus on infectious disease. So we applied for this to the uh, EIT Health and we got money for that. And uh, after that, we also applied for a, a label, EIT label for this kind of school. And we received that. And that was the first time, I think, that any EIT Health partners got this kind of PhD student programs to the label. So it's very interesting. We'll see where it goes. But it's a very, very nice way because we get funding for courses and seminars. As Don said, we want them to be together between the different sites. And we also got a lot of mobility. We can transfer the PhD <laughs> students back and forth. Uh, no, we can have the possibility of actually funding uh, part of this mobility. And that's important because otherwise it might be hard to bring two distantly placed schools together yeah. in, in a good way. So and with the, this topic that Linus just mentioned, we also put the first uh, foot in something that we want to develop more in US in the future, which is the connection between the industry mm. and academia. Because this money 
for this PhD program also focuses a lot into finding synergies and partnerships on the academia side with the industry side. Mm. So this is something that we're also going to work on. Sounds like the UAC has a really good future right now. <laughs> this might be a little bit overlapping, but what are the UAC's current strategic priorities? You mentioned, of course, financing and continuing to develop the program, but are there any other things that haven't already been brought up? I think also something we have to strengthen in the future, that is collaboration with the industry. One can do that in many ways, but one possibility, for example, would be to have PhD students that are industry PhDs that are kind of shared. They have a PI at the university, but also one at the industry, and that would be a way to get different types of pharmaceutical industry involved in this. Apart from the funding, which I at least see as the most important strategic question for the near future, I think also something we are missing in the center, which on the other hand Gothenburg is very strong at, uh, that's the environmental aspect of antibiotic resistance. Antibiotics out in the environment, uh, how do they influence antibiotic resistance evolution? Are they important? We don't really know today. There are lots of suggestions that there are, lots of data that suggest that there is a problem, but we can't really say. And I think that's, that's something we should strengthen research-wise in Uppsala and at UAC. Maybe increase the collaborations with Gothenburg Yeah, well. that, that would be another way. Yeah. And we already have established collaborations between individual PIs, but uh, to have a more formal collaboration between the centers would be nice also. Something I think that would be good that we strengthen as well, that we haven't really worked on. I do it personally when I teach, but we have all the different disciplines as kind of not the PhD student level, but the basic students that we bring in these concepts in the different programs that exist. We have it already for pharmacy students and for medical students and so on, but it's still something we could easily do something from the center. It's harder to get in on the programs, but <laughs> we could easily offer a more broader picture of the yeah, yeah. kind of a package for, for different kinds of, of students. And there is an interest from different areas, at least, but uh, still we haven't formally done any extracurricular <laughs> well, you can always kind of compare it to environmental studies and I mean, climate change and the environmental mm. impact. There's so many different focuses from different disciplines, but all kind of tied back to environmental science and mm. climate change and then antibiotic resistance isn't really all too different in its basic issue. So it might be a similar process there that it'll tie into more mm. disciplines. Yeah. But it feels like it's one of those problems where it has to come more from People like people in the UAC to bring it in, it doesn't kind of happen naturally. No, these fields are, the similarity with climate change, I think, is great. I mean, it's very analogous. It's, it is a defined problem, but it has so many dimensions, and there are so, so many areas that are potentially involved in the solutions. And the people in these different areas, they have to interact with each other and know what the other people are doing. Because I don't think the solution is going to come necessarily from one specific area. No. It's not going to be solved if we get a new fuel. Few new antibiotics, it needs much more than that. We have to have stewardship, we have to have a 
smarter use of antibiotic. We have to have a generally reduced use of antibiotics to solve this. Well, I'm going to jump back a little bit now because we've covered a lot. But does the Uppsala Antibiotic Center have any specific objectives or values that you feel are crucial and that are also important for people listening to this podcast to know about? I think we have talked about several yeah, of those objectives. And it's values. quite overlapping. Uh, for me, at least, the way I see it is that it's a, the basis for it is education. To educate a new generation of PhDs that understands the broadness of the problem. Um, I think you need that to be able even though you have a specialty, it is something you, you you know well, of course, in your PhD, I think it's very important that you understand the other dimensions of it, apart from, it your, in the context. from your own field. And, and I think that, that, I think, perhaps is the most important objective of the center, to generate those students. And from there, we also expanded to the to people that are interested to a bigger community at the university and if we get that to also go into the general teaching then I think we get a big effect mm -hmm. and of course we also interact with the general public to raise the awareness of it. So this might be a kind of weird question but why did you choose this way of focusing on financing PhD students and projects from different disciplines. Why did you choose this method and think this was the best one? We actually discussed this a lot. How, what would be the best way to get people from different fields to interact, to collaborate? And we soon realized that the students is probably the best way to do that. And it will also give a, a long-term effect. I mean, another way to do it would have been to give project money to individual PIs and then they do their separate projects. But then you don't get anything extra that way. There is no interdisciplinarity necessarily. There's always the risk that people kind of disappear with their money and they go and do what they have always done and that there is nothing new generated. So we, we thought students would be... A, good way to provide that integration and of course we are also at the university and yeah. teaching is uh, <laughs> the central part of what we do so that's another reason for why PhD students we thought was a good way of doing it. I think if we had uh, put this money into let's say other types of research projects where people could have used their money in a more free way I don't think the university would have been as interested so I think there were several reasons, but the main one was it's a good way of integrating and creating value for the future with PhDs. It's really a way of tying together a lot of, I mean, in Sweden, the university has, by law, three roles in research, education, and outreach. Mm -hmm. And it feels like the center really gets their claws into everything. There's, yes, it's got true. all yeah. parts of it yeah. involved. Yeah, we cover all parts. Yeah. yeah, which I think a lot of other university initiatives don't target all at once. Mm. No. Or not only Uppsala, mm. of course. I mean, yeah. it's all universities. Mm. I don't yeah. mean specifically. It's, it's hard to cover all the things. Yeah. And I think that the approach for the PhD student was a very good one. Also, to, since I, as I said before, there was some 
some people thought that it was going to have more centers, but in this case, the center actually built something that was a bigger unit <laughs> and not just the ordinary separating into small silo structures doing research in that kind of way. So we bring in all these three factors that is an important part of the center. You also mentioned earlier one thing that maybe is missing right now from the center is more of this industry connection. Mm. Is there anything else that you feel, I mean, an area of interest for the center that you want to develop or focus on? You also mentioned, of course, environmental science aspect. Something that has been discussed, and when we started it, it's all Uppsala University that put in the funding. But we have a, a number of other stakeholders, so to say, here in Uppsala, actually. So we have the Swedish Agricultural University, we have the Swedish Veterinary Agency, we also have the Food Agency, is that what it's called in English? I don't remember. Livsmedelsverket yeah. yeah. in Swedish. And also we have the... Yeah. The Medical Products Agency. Medical Products Agency. All, all those uh, are here in Uppsala. And the ones we are closest to are, of course, the Agricultural University and the Veterinary Agency, because they're part of the steering group as well. Mm -hmm. And bringing them closer might be something that we're doing in the future as well. They are interested, uh, yeah. and we're also interested. It's uh, tough to bring together different faculties <laughs> in <laughs> one university. There's a lot of barriers. And bringing together separate universities and also... Uh, more governmental agencies is even harder. Has, uh, yeah, it, it has. I mean, the, the people have good intentions and want to do this, but there might be barriers. Yeah, and we need a more formal way of doing it. Perhaps. Like we're working, working on, on the logistics and yeah. bringing to USC the more one health aspect of antibiotics mm. and antibiotic research. Right, not only on the human side, but also bringing in the environmental part and the mm -hmm. veterinary and personal. From each of your own personal perspectives, then, the Uppsala Antibiotic Center is obviously something that you believed needed to come to exist, or something similar that needs to be, this was missing from AMR research, but is there anything else that you believe is still missing, despite all the work you've put into building the center? Do you, any of you personally believe that there is something missing that you wish there was more of? Depends on what you mean <laughs> with regard to the Uppsala Antibiotic Center or with regard to the to the, the community the as a whole maybe more not specifically here in Uppsala AMR as a whole AMR yeah, research AMR as, a whole. as a whole yes of course there are things missing and this is kind of the standard answer to many problems but I think it's really true and I, the amount of money that's put into this problem it's becoming better but it's not it's, it's far from enough for many of the problems especially with regard to drug development new antibiotics mm -hmm. which are extremely costly and it's since the pharmaceutical industry has left the field to a large extent the amount of money that goes into this has been reduced and it's basically academia that has to fill this void and I think in the long run, that is not sustainable. I think academia can solve certain problems, but for example, it's very difficult to do large clinical trials. And they are very costly, and academia typically don't know how to do that. It's, it's something that industry is very good at. So it's, I think the long-term problem is to get the pharmaceutical industry back into this. It is a fact that 
most large pharmaceutical companies have basically closed down their anti-infective research, especially in bacteriology. Linus or Eva? No, I mean, that is the main part, that the industry is drifting away from this area. There are other parts of the areas that they focus more on, like diagnostics. There are lots of things popping up there. But still, we need the big pharma to actually get new antibiotics, which is a central part. Then we need, we're doing a lot in the broader sense and academia where we can look at different aspects of the problem. But I, I think Don is absolutely correct that the industry is what's missing at this point. I am not sure I have the enough knowledge on the topic to actually be able to grasp what is really missing. But from listening to conversations over these months and to the people we brought to USC and the workshops, I think one thing that surprised me a lot is how can we solve the problem in countries that have a different infrastructure socially and politically than ours when it comes to the problem of antibiotic resistance. So I found that probably there is a lot of work needed in that bringing in sociologists, anthropologists and people that can understand the differences between the cultures and how do we bring the knowledge on the topic that we maybe create here or in other countries to solve the problems they have in other parts of the world like can be the low and middle income countries. I don't work in the topic, but what I have heard is, is something that is needed at the moment. Something one should remember, we are talking here about reducing antibiotic use, and that is something we should do in many countries and regions. But at the same time, in certain countries, we actually should increase antibiotic use. And that is a, that is a different, difficult message to sell, that yeah, we should reduce some places but not at others uh, and i think there is agreement that more people are dying today because they don't have access to antibiotics than because of antibiotic resistance mm -hmm. and as long as it is like that we have to take that into account that is we have to give access to antibiotics much better access to certain countries uh, but other countries should probably reduce their antibiotic use to a large extent. Part of it makes this problem so uniquely complex. Yeah, mm -hmm. it does. It's extremely context-dependent. Mm -hmm. Well, on that note, uh, we probably have to wrap up. Uh, I want to thank you all, Don, Linus, and Eva, for being here with us today. Uh, is there anything you'd like to add at the end? You don't have to it's add anything. <laughs> We've covered a lot. Yeah. Hey, you're serious! <laughs> <laughs> I just want to add that I I hope that the, this format and bringing up the voices of the people working, not just in the center, but all around the world in this topic is of interest to people and that we can highlight and really put an emphasis on how complicated this problem is, but how we are also working on it and we are getting closer and closer to a better outlook on the problem as well. Great. Well, thank you very much again. Thank, thank you. you. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed the interview. We apologize if the sound wasn't perfect <laughs> because we had some technical difficulties, but we hope to uh, solve that problem in the coming interviews and the coming episodes. This podcast is actually premiering with the Global Antibiotic Awareness Week as a backdrop. 
Jenny, can you tell us a little bit more about what the Global Antibiotic Awareness Week is? So World Antibiotic Awareness Week is a yearly campaign launched by the WHO in 2015. So it's meant to increase awareness regarding the complex issue of antibiotic resistance, which is, of course, something that we're focusing on here in this podcast. So it feels like a great time to start it. Usually the World Antibiotic Awareness Week has one central theme that they focus on, but this year the WHO is doing it a little bit differently. They have daily themes that focus on a lot of the complexities that we mentioned, both in the introduction before the interview, as well as the interview that we showed you guys today. But there is a central theme that they're focusing on, which is, or I guess two central themes that they're focusing on, think twice, seek advice, and misuse of antibiotics puts us all at risk, which covers most of the problems. Yeah, so these two main themes are basically focused, targeted to the general population, so they Mm -hmm. can actually be aware that in many cases, antibiotics might not be needed for whatever illness they think they have, and they actually want antibiotics, but they might not need it. So think twice, do you need antibiotics? Seek advice, seek your health professional, and we'll be able to tell you if you need antibiotics or not. Yeah. And then the misuse of antibiotics puts us all at risk, because if we do continue using antibiotics for illnesses that are not actually caused by bacteria, <laughs> like a lot of now that the winter is coming, all this mm-hmm. cold that are actually viral, antibiotics won't actually work. So these two main things are really good when bringing the problem of antibiotic resistance to the general public. Mm -hmm. And if you want to know more about what's going on this week, uh, the WHO has a great website that includes an interactive platform showing all the different activities going on around the world. There's a lot of different countries participating in Antibiotic Awareness Week this year. There's also campaign materials, guides. I think there's even like social media things that you can use as well. There's also a focus from the European Union. We're based in Sweden, so we're going to focus a little bit on the EU. There's European Antibiotic Awareness Day on the 18th of November, which is this Sunday. You can find more information on the European Awareness Day website as well, but they also are using the hashtag keep antibiotics working, so you can find more information there as well. In social media. In social media. Hashtag Hashtag keep keep antibiotics working. (laughs) In Sweden specifically, there'll be an antibiotic forum on this Wednesday, the 15th of November, hosted by the Swedish Public Health Agency and the Swedish Agricultural Agency. A full day with talks about the problem of antibiotic resistance and how we are actually working against it here in Sweden. Yes. And more information and a program can be found on the Swedish Public Health Agency's website. Yes, good Swedish. (laughs) With that, uh, we'd like to thank you for listening to us today and hope that you come back and listen to us later. Uh, Thank you for me, Jenny Jagman. And thank you for me, Eva Garmendia. Uh, We aim to be a monthly podcast. So we really hope that you are going to be here with us next month as well. And we promise you exciting uh, interviews and uh, getting to know what people are working on from all around the world. Exactly. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. For more information about the Uppsala Antibiotic Center, please visit our website www.uac.uu.se. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is uac underscore uu. See you around. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios team, including Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, and Po Chen Tang. Music was written and performed by Henrik Nies.